Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Enter the house of mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. Joe Goldberg is back in the room. I'm in the room. I'm enjoying all the pollen that's with me right now. 
Thank you very much, Spring. Well, that's alert party. my phone this morning saying, hey, it's a high pollen alert. Thank you very much. You don't need to send me an alert. I already know that there's a high pollen alert. You're, you're always sniffing. I'm a sniffer. You're a sniffer. You can, He's got you the can nose for sniffing. Any you want, Al, because yeah. I learned from the best. <laughs> not touching that. Well, today we'll be talking to, um, you know, quite a, quite a writer. Um, let's just get him in and find out about where he came from and where he's going. So, Mr. Michael Frost Beckner, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. This is it's quite a delight. I'm, I'm very excited to be on your show. Well, hopefully you say that afterwards. We will. We hope so. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> who knows where we're going to go? Let's talk about your history and how you got to where you are now. I mean, making uh, you you've had books made into movies. You got series. You got all this stuff going on, and we need to talk about how it began. Yeah, I, I went to university and studied writing. I I took a master's degree as a undergraduate novel writing. I was told by the vaunted USC Film School that although they could take a smart person and make them creative, they couldn't take a creative person and make them smart, which would kind of smart it. So I went into novel writing. I studied that. And I was fortunate to um, be mentored by T.C. Boyle. Instead of doing my thesis as a book, I petitioned to do the master's thesis uh, of a screenplay. And the reason really wasn't that I wanted to be in Hollywood anymore. I was a little ticked off. But the guidelines were it couldn't be longer than 120 pages, and the margins were really narrow. And I was president of my fraternity, which really just meant I was goofing off. And so that seemed like a real good uh, trick to pull on the faculty. And so I did that. Boyle was a little annoyed with me, but we did a screenplay. And shortly after, after college, I went into publicity at Walt Disney, um, writing captions, if you remember the old, uh, when we, you know, you, the press kit would go out with the poster and the still pictures. I was the guy that wrote copyright, you know, whatever year, Walt Disney Productions. And uh, came to the attention of Barry Levinson, the director, my next writing job, he gave me a job. I wrote all the, uh, on Good Morning Vietnam, I was the guy that wrote all the teletype stuff as the movie goes on. Um, we get updates on the war through the teletype, and I wrote all those. Then I was his assistant on, writing assistant on Rain Man, which went into production or pre-production during the strike of 86. Uh, so no one could write on it, uh, who was a Writers Guild member. I wasn't, so he would dictate the rewrite to me all day, and then I'd type it up all night and turn it in, and he'd get his red pen out and did it. And that kind of taught me screenwriting. Um, what works, what doesn't work, you know, because I'd have to fill in the blank. He'd just say, okay, it, it's uh, Las Vegas Casino. And then he'd do all the dialogue, and then, you know, I'd have to fill in the blanks. So that, that got me writing, and my first script, Sniper, was bought by his production company, and we made that as a film. So I was launched in 89, and I didn't really look back uh, to the novel writing thing. But I was extremely successful. It was a period after that strike where the studios, a lot of Japanese money had come into the studio system, and they bought a bunch of studios. They funded a bunch of what they called mini-majors. But they all needed product. And so I that became real ripe spec script market. And I was very fortunate. It was talent meets opportunity. And I sold three kind of right in a row over the course of about 18 months that all broke the record for the highest selling script of all time. One of them was Hunchback of Notre Dame, which ended up as an animated musical, uh, <laughs> which I didn't write that, but they used some of my stuff. Another one was Cutthroat Island, which when I sold it, it starred Michael Douglas. When they made it, Gina Davis played that role. Uh, for years, my eldest son would get the Guinness Book of World Records at Christmas and gleefully point out that, Dad, you're still the biggest failure of all time. I think at this point there's another movie that, that has surpassed it as, as a box office Congratulations. disaster. But, um, but for a long time it was uh, the biggest box office disaster of all time. And another one was called Texas Lead and Gold, which was a Western, which sold to a company called Largo and they went out of it. As a screenwriter, my career was, was always in originals. And for many years, that was, you know, what the movies made. Now, nowadays, they don't really make uh, just original screenplays anymore. You're not going to get the wild bunch, you know. You're not going to get those. It's, you know, is it a remake? Is it a cartoon character or a comic book character? Um, is it a serial box? It's, you know, marketing's taken over, and, and um, that's how they do it. But anyway, 
with Spy Game, I was riding pretty high in Hollywood, had movies in production, and um, I decided I'd go back to the uh, novel rights that I started out as and really had envisioned my... Wrote a big fat book, had another kid on the way, took it, had taken a year off, didn't have any money, so I lopped off the ending of the book and wrote it as a screenplay. And uh, that sold uh, to Beacon Pictures. That was, it was not what I typically did. What I was typically writing and selling were action novels. And this was, you know, the, the movie that you saw is sort of the ending of that book. And it was more cerebral, more character-based. Um, and when I, when I approached it, I kind of went back to what Tom Boyle had taught me or, or kind of pushed me in the direction of. He said, you know, your best writing is you like to write about storytellers, about people telling story and who those people are, because it's kind of an interesting approach, but lean into it. And so I did with, with Spiding, which then, you know, it, it's mostly Robert Redford in an interrogation room or a conference room kind of being interrogated, and how he's telling the story and what the story's about. And as a screenplay, every studio hated it. They, they said it's all flashback. When it's flashback, it's narration. The two main characters never meet. Um, at the time, it was to be Paul Newman and Robert Redford. And then it took a few years to get Beacon to buy it. And at that point, Newman said, you know, I'm really too old to do this, but why don't you have Redford do the role you didn't mention for me, um, you know, rather than the pretty boy role. And so Redford came on, and then Beacon got Brad Pitt, um, but they didn't want to pay the gigantic price tag that my scripts usually went for. Um, but they said, we'll stay faithful to your script, um, and you keep all your rights to all the characters, to the book that you wrote. We don't want to buy that. It's all yours. We just want to make this one small film. That happened, and it was a, it was a big hit. It, it went through a lot of iterations, did some different directors. They hired a, um, a Dutch filmmaker a guy named Mike Van Diem, he won an Academy Award for Best Short Film, and then he won Best Foreign Film, and he saw himself as Orson Welles, and he rewrote the entire script, um, went in a completely different, bore no resemblance to the movie that, that ended up. That went for two or three years. They, Redford said, this is ridiculous. I, I signed on to the Beckman script. And so Tony Scott came in and said, we're going to go back to your script, make some changes for budget, but that's what we're going to do. And they did that. And so I put all that aside, but it was kind of, I kind of banked that, uh, knowing that as a screenwriter, you have a shelf life. Uh, um, and, you know, at a certain point, I'm not going to be the flavor of the month or the year or the decade, and, and I better have something to fall back, which is what I did uh, around the time pre-COVID, just before COVID. And I decided to take that back, and I felt if I wanted to, to dive into, into being a novelist, why not do it with something that I had some IP on? And uh, so Spy Game, that's how Spy Game and the, the books came about. And so I, I wrote three books over the course of 18 months, a, a trilogy. I've had quite a, quite a bit of, of, I feel, personal success and critical acclaim for them. As what goes around comes around, Beacon Pictures came back and said, oh boy, these are brilliant and we want to do these and, and reboot it as a streaming, service, streaming series. And so we'll see where that goes. But that's kind of the genesis of, of my artistic path. Well, in tough times, did you have to strip or exotic dance? Uh, yes. You, you know, it, it's a, it's a, the business goes up and down, and I went up and down <laughs> grinding on the pole. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, uh, it, it is quite a uh, – it's not a, a – the Hollywood thing is not anything like that. Yeah. Big highs, deep lows. You've you got to manage your money. I didn't. Um, expensive divorces. I didn't manage my personal relationships properly either, and uh, but it's been quite a ride. It's, it's nice. I, I like it now, though. I'm I'm quietly in Las Vegas. I'm writing all the time. I'm, you know, uh, it's much much better and a lot less uh, aggravation. And in, you know, in the meantime, I created series, and yeah, I've been on the set for years and worked with everyone, um, and and that was all quite quite exciting. How does it change you when you deal with Hollywood? And that you know to do your 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 book into something like whether they're making a movie or a series, and I know what this is like, especially when they make a movie and they don't really, you know. And you were talking about not following your your book, just kind of doing their own thing, and that. And I know that feeling. But how does it change you as a writer? Well, 
It's, it's, there's two ways that it happens. Sometimes they ask you to do that, and, and um, that's what's happening with the adaptations of my three spy game book. The main character, who's, who's a minor role in the film, a character named Aiken, who the trilogy is about, is told from this point of view. For the series, and the way social politics are these days, you know, they came to me and they say, well, can we make him uh, black? I go, yeah, we can do that. Can we make him a woman? I suppose. Um, and now, a lot of people, I have a good relationship with the studio that made the film, and so I said, yeah, I'm happy to do that. And so, as it sits getting ready to go forward, there are three scripts for the pilot that they're looking at cast con uh, concurrently, um, where one is Aiken as I wrote him uh, in, in the script, a white male. One is a black male and one is uh, a white female. And so I don't mind when they, when they want to change things up from what I originally wrote if, if I have the chance to do that. I think it's a creative challenge. Each of those versions in, in that are, are fairly exciting because each one changes the politics and the character inter interactions, the personal politics. And so for me, it's exciting to rewrite and reconceive something and, and see where it takes me. I, I find that just thrilling. Um, the books will always live as the books. They, they stay, stay the same, and, 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 you know, I own them. I can keep writing the characters as I have them. But really with film, and I know this from, you know, creating television series and having to cast them and, and, and rewrite them and go with what the network wants and what's, you know, suddenly, you know, an actor isn't working and you've created a whole season that has to go on, go forward, but you got to lose that actor and create a new character. I get how it works, and it's just... It, it's a different beast and a different form of entertainment. For me, the, the film thing is really about the team effort and everyone putting in their creative gold in, into this thing, and, and the, that's where the treasure comes from. For writing, for me, it's really about the words and the language. The, so, so my writing and my, my novel writing, my prose fiction and my film work don't really match in that. My prose fiction is much more about prose, and um, and character development and psychology, and you know what what I write for television and film is always about action and activity and plot. And uh, with Spy Game, uh, after it was sold, and they came and they said, "Hey, we got this director. It's hot. He wants to change it. You you willing to to step aside and and, and let him run with it?" Um, yeah, that kind of hurt my feelings. Uh, I hadn't published the books yet, and he changed it drastically. I mean, he might as well have changed the names of the characters because it really bore no resemblance. When you sit on that, you go, oh, shoot, they're going to make it. It's going to have my name on it. I hate it. good at knowing what will work and what won't work in Hollywood after 30 years, and at that time after maybe 15. That was, that was hard. That was devastating. It was, it was great to get a call from Tony Scott saying, no, 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 no. But, you know, certain... Certain adaptations, you've got to make the changes, and you've got to go with it. And, and I don't mind. I, I'll, I'll see a lot of films where I've read the book, and, and they make some big changes. For instance, the um, Mick Heron Slow Horse, the second season I thought was ter terrific. They deviated quite a bit from the book, but yeah. he was involved. And I think the way they went improved on what he'd done. Um, I think the... The changes they made to it, especially with the ending and how that fit together, fit together much more eloquently in the, in the um, television series. And, and um, I don't know what he, he said about it. I, I don't know. But I think that was an improvement. Um, and, and so you, you never know. But it's, it's, you have to separate. It's two different forms of entertainment. One is, is, you know, for the consumer, one is all in their head. And, you know, they're using their imagination to film it, and you're trying to give them the cues that you give through writing. And the other one's all visual and oral. I mean, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's two different parts of the brain that you're entertaining. So I, I try not to worry about that too much and just know how to separate them and what I want to achieve. With well, how do you know that? How, how as a writer, you'd go from sort of short form, 120-page sort of outline of a major movie versus 300-plus pages of a prose novel where you get the, the ability to put all that, that stuff in. How, how does that change you as you write? Well, in, in a screenplay, you know, I, I have 
you know, six lines to paint the picture, but I know that the director and the production designer, um, all the way down to the original uh, location scouts, they're going to do it a lot better than the cues I give them. So I just give them cues. I give them cues on that. My dialogue always pretty much stays the same, but a lot of, in, in what I delve into in fiction is people don't say what they actually think and what they mean, and especially in writing espionage, that's, that's clear. Um, you can't really delve into that in, in screenwriting. You have to let the actor and the nuance of how he's going to, or she, are going to use their expressions, use their body language and use that, and you have to rely on that. Um, I know better in, in television where my job, in TV, the writer, if I write a good script, they take it and run and, and they don't, you know, they don't need you on the set. It's not really your business. In television, where I spent half my career and, and, and still continue, uh, the writer is in charge. So I hire all the directors, I hire all the cast. And so that's why a TV script is, is you know, 45 to 55 pages and, and you can get as much nowadays. Television is, is perform, outperforming film. But that's because the writer is able to, okay, I shorthanded it here, but I, I know what I want. Now, when I sit down to write something as a book, all that stuff that they're doing, that, that the set is doing, that the light is doing, that's motivating them, and, and, and the actors are finding their motivation, whatever way actors do that, um, that's my job in a book to convey that. So it's, and the other thing with me and, and my writing is I'm, I'm not writing uh, so much plot-driven stuff. I, I really do lean back to what Tom Boyle had, had taught me, um, is, to, is to lean into why, I write stories about people telling stories. It's usually an interrogation or a confession or a, a, a long letter. And it's why are they writing what they're writing and what words they're choosing. So when I'm, when I'm writing prose fiction, I am obsessed with, the, with, with word form, sentence structure, and all that. It's, it's probably not um, popular uh, fiction that way, um, and more literary, and, and we'll only, time will only tell if I have the chops to be a literary writer and, and, and succeed. I guess I am already, but to actually succeed in, in, in the, but that's more what I'm interested in. So, you know, what had been half a book when I took Mirror's Gambit, which was half of what Spy Game the movie was, that was the other half, and then suddenly the half that book's gone, I made it into a movie. What was I going to do to expand it? And that's where I came with the character in the film, who's a minor, minor role. He had less lines on screen than he actually had in the script. Um, I decided, well, let's get into his head and tell the story of sort of how we get to that movie through his point of view. And and so that opened it up and allowed it to, to expand from maybe 200 pages to, to about 400, a little less than 400 pages, um, because I really like to delve into character. Where do you draw from um, to be able to write about um, Cold War, espionage, spy, all that sort of thriller kind of stuff? Where do you draw from? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. Um, growing up, I had... You, you know, they tell you write what you know, and you, you get the writing courses and stuff. And you, I don't know. You write about if you're in college, you write about your college, high school hygiene. I don't know what you write, but you know, when you take that a little bit differently, what do you know? Well, I know the people that I I, I knew as as a kid growing up, and and then as a young adult. And there were always people within the larger circle of my family that had been in, engaged in intelligence. I was told not to talk about one, but I can talk about the other. Um, my grandfather, my dad's father, my dad was a professional athlete. He had nothing to do with it. Um, my grandfather was, I think he ended his career as head of narcotics for the state of California, but he was undercover most of his life, and there were always interesting people at the house at holidays. And I'm... Uh, <laughs> you won't know that from this because I'm talking all the time, but I'm a pretty good listener. And as a little kid, I'd listen to these people in the back kitchen, the back porch off the kitchen where the uh, bar was. And uh, I'd listen to these older men talking about stuff that I pieced together as I got older were intelligence, were, were about intelligence and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, my brother got me interested in... Cold War and and all of that. 
um, he ended up, young age, he moved to Washington and then um, in the private sector, uh, was involved in, in electronic warfare uh, uh, in Europe, uh, anti-submarine warfare. And so there was a lot of that kind of, those books around and that sort of thing. But anyway, I, you know, like I, I mentioned, I started writing in, in Hollywood. I started writing, you know, action comedies. And, you know, if you've ever seen a Die Hard or a, a Lethal Weapon, you know, there's some of my gunplay in those. I, I was always sent, here, rewrite this. It needs to be more, um, you know, there needs to be more action in it. And I'd always say, well, actually, yeah, you got plenty of action. <laughs> Your characters are rather stupid. But, um, but anyway, I did that. But I realized, you know, when I, when I sat down to do, do Spy Game, I realized when it got to write what you know, I kind of knew a lot about intelligence. I knew a lot about what these people were like um, from meeting them. And, and later on, as people in my family got married, there would be other characters who just happened to be in, in that business. That I was always good at drawing people out. Not really about what, what was the mission, but what was it like? And, and, what, you know, and, and so Spy Game developed out of, a, you know, it's not James Bond. These people are sometimes damaged, um, usually heroic, um, have a good sense of patriotism, maybe blunted by things that they've seen. And, and so I started writing those kinds of things. I thought around that time I had some chance encounters with people that turned out to be retired from the CIA or having worked with them. People, you meet someone on an airplane that happened to sit next to you, or you're at a bar, and um, I started to gather these people around me. And as a young man, I thought I was very clever and very lucky um, because it got me invited to Langley um, to tour it, to meet some other people, and all very fascinated with Holly. What, what, what are you writing? What do you plan to write? Here's some tips. Here we'll give you this and that, and which um, ended up pushing me towards creating the series, The Agency, which um, I, I sold that to CBS in April of 2000, and we made it in about a year later. And the pilot was Al Qaeda terror plot, um, you know, taking down some big buildings against the West. And we filmed it. I, I set it in London, although it was. The series idea was there's going to be a war on terror, and the CIA has to develop this, this sort of new way to, to approach that. Because September 11th happened, we pulled the pilot, showed it later in the year. Uh, we did another episode. And I thought I was a guy that was pressing the man, you know, coming up with that sort of thing. And, and I had at that point some retired CIA who, who were advising the series, and I bounced ideas off of them. And... Three or four times in the course of that first year of 2001, storylines that, that I developed and aired as episodes happened after the episodes aired. So the show was quite a success. People thought it was great. I was on TV quite a bit um, as some kind of, uh, how, how are you able to do that? I, and I thought at the time, God, I'm just, I'm a genius. Um, I look back now, uh, you know, quarter of a century later, I was sort of groomed into that. I, I was fed sort of, here's a good example. There was an episode where we wanted to use a Predator drone doing surveillance. And, and someone from Langley had called and said, you know, here's a good idea. Why don't you put a Hellfire missile on that? I go, well, can you do that? They go, no, you, you, you can't do that, but this is TV. This is great. And so we did an episode of a conflict, a, a, a conflict getting ready to brew between India and Pakistan and the way to defuse it was they used the Predator drone with the Hellfire missile and killed the Pakistani terrorist general. And wasn't that great uh, inventive drama? And then two weeks later, oh, Predator drones can be equipped with Hellfire missiles and they killed the Pakistani uh, terrorist. And that's when I kind of thought, oh, shoot, they're, they're kind of using me to test things out. You know, we have high ratings for that. Public love it. And they let us film at Langley. Our... Premiere was supposed to be in the um, in the dome at Langley uh, in September of 2001, and and I have framed on my wall the invitation from George Tennant and CBS saying please RSVP by September 11th. So I, I find that slightly ironic. 
Um, we didn't have that premiere. But anyway, so I collected that. But jumping back, the strangest thing really is the character of Nathan Muir, who Redford plays in the film, really developed from, there was a PE coach I had in junior high. He was a Vietnam veteran. This is in the, I guess, the early, mid-70s. And he ran backpacking. Backpacking was big. And we did a lot of outdoor stuff, and he ran backpacking, Chris. And we'd go every summer and do two weeks. A group of, of young men, and it would be him and some of his veteran friends. And, um, and we'd go up and do, you know, portions of the John Muir Trail. In the, in the spring, we'd do some of the, uh, what is the Pacific Crest Trail, which is, I grew up in, in the San Fernando Valley, and that's the one that cuts through California all the way, I suppose, up to Canada. Uh, and he would, you know, there's no radio, no phone, no, you can't really get, you got nothing but the campfire. And I was mesmerized, and I think all the young men and, and some young women on those trips were mesmerized by the stories these guys would, would tell around the campfire. Things that happened in Vietnam and, and, and that sort of thing. Years later, and, and, and anyway, his patriotism, his, his calm, his kind of sardonic wit, very funny but very dry, humorous, and he had a way of mesmerizing you with the story. And when I created Nathan Muir's character, I created it from him. And some of the backstory was some of the stories that, that he told. And then I ran into him many years later while I was working on the books. And uh, he, he asked me, he said, well, Spy Game is one of my favorite movies. And I said, well, Dan, um, it was based on you. I mean, it was based on him and a few of these other people that I'd met through uh, in my youth. Um, I said, well, Danny, how did you, you must have seen yourself in it. And he kind of gave me a look. He goes, how would you possibly know that? And I said, what do you mean? He said, I, I said, you were, you know, in the Army. And this, he goes, I was in Laos. I worked for the CIA. I was, those stories I told you were very sanitized versions of what we were doing in, in Laos. And, um, and anyway, it, it turned out, I, I guess I, I'd broken his cover without out knowing it, just intuitively thought it. And so he, he developed a lot. The, the new book I'm writing, which, if you take my three most recent books, the Aiken Trilogy, the Spy Game Story, I'm now going to the Mirror Trilogy. And I go back, and as these books and as the film did, they have the present-day story, but they also, that story ripples back and, 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 and ripples forward, I suppose, back to an earlier time. And um, so he and I have been speaking uh, recently. He worked on uh, Operation Popeye was a weather, um, you know, trying to control the weather in, in, um, uh, over North Vietnam and, and, and Southeast Asia to, so that they couldn't get a rice production. And um, so that's kind of interesting, and that's sort of the underlying story of, of what takes place in the past, what takes place in the, in the 90s. It was rather interesting realizing that, that weather being, you know, and climate uh, being a kind of a hot topic, it, it seems to resonate my agent and... and uh, and people that I've, I've pitched it to. So I'm looking forward to, to really cracking a nut on that. When you write, you know, you, you've been prescient and gotten some, you know, you, you've hit the mark on things that did eventually occur. But as you're writing, are you thinking about a greater theme or idea or things you want people to get out of it when you're doing your tell a story about a storyteller structure? Yeah, that, that I write. My prose writing, film writing, I don't really have room for that. But in, in writing prose fiction, that's I, I write all theme. I, I, I probably lack a little bit in plot. So with the first book of the Spy Game trilogy that's out now, Mirrors Gambit, um, that really examines, you know, two individuals, one the Nathan Muir character, one the CIA attorney who's there to pretty much interrogate him, get a confession, out of him and, and lock up all his secrets. And it's the idea of these people are sanctioned to lie. They're sanctioned to lie and to get other people to commit treason for their, against their countries. Heroes to us, but clearly they're, they're traitors to their own countries. And, what, and, and that book really delves into what it is to live a life of lies where you're Everything to everyone, but very little, almost nothing to yourself. You're, you're whatever the person you're trying to recruit, the, the operation you're running, whatever you think that they want you to be, you, you, you feed that to them. One, one guy once told me, he said, what we do when we recruit someone is we offer them whatever their Disneyland is. 
and we give it to them, and we are that person, and we're their Mickey Mouse. So that book, the theme of that really is is lives sanctioned, lives of lives that are sanctioned, what that does really to your soul. And, you know, you think it might be a great free pass that you can lie all the time about everything, and it's not only allowed, it's it's encouraged. Um, I think that, and, and, and this goes back to people that I've known, I think that takes a toll on the psyche. And um, I think we instinctively, um, philosophically, I think we actually as humans don't really like to lie, don't, uh, it doesn't serve us very well, it's, it has its moral and social detractions, um, and it's damaging, and it's damaging to yourself. And so, so that book is about sanctioned lying and what it does to, to the human soul. Uh, in the second book, I, I pinned that down, so that's pinned down in the first book. In Bishop's Endgame, we look at, okay, the guy who's the sanctioned liar is living a false reality. And he's presenting his identity as something false. And that's your workaday identity. What is What impact on the person then is a life of false identity? And it gets into, you know, we always hear appearance versus reality. But in the nature of, of the spy game, appearance is reality. Because it's the reality you're living. And it, it, it dictates how reality works around you. And so the concept of, a life of lies and false identity kind of really collide in Bishop's Endgame. And now it's sort of, well, who am I? If, if 90% of the time I'm presenting myself as someone else, what is my identity? Is it some little tiny thing inside me that I don't show anyone? How can that possibly be an identity? And so it's the struggle of the characters to really sort of figure out and, and embrace or deny their own true identities in, in, when they're living in a world of false identities. In the third book, I take those two things and crunch them together and, and look at how that impacts the exchange of information. Espionage is great for that because espionage is all about information. It's about getting information, interpreting it, analyzing it, passing it on. But you look at the people, when you look at information physics, um, the person, once someone touches information, their perspective and who they are impacts that information. That story then becomes how do how do these damaged people, in a sense, their pursuit of information, what they're choosing to pursue, what they're choosing to share, how they're sharing it, how does that impact the exchange of information itself and impact the information? And so then the third book goes into that versus the electronic fishing for uh, information and, and how electronic information gathering. And, and how those two things collide. You know, information physics, information is sort of the building block of quantum physics. You, you have nothing without information. So then that book goes, and it's, it's that book uh, where the others may read a little, little more like normal spy books. It gets into the absurdity of that and of the twisting of reality through how information is manipulated. So, yeah, I, I write, that's what interests me. Because of my movie training, I guess, and TV training, I'm really good at putting a, a ripping story across that. But I'm more interested in, in studying those, the nature of people in those. In those. How, how do you develop your characters? How do you um, create and and work out like one of your main characters? It's a good question. Well, they all first evolve from a mishmash of numerous people that I've known or interviewed or who have been presented to me as you, you need to talk to this. And I'll take, because you're writing drama, and, and, and it ha, you know, it's larger than life, and no matter what. So I take larger than, I take a lot of things from a lot of people and crunch them down in, into individual characters. The other thing I do is I spend a lot of time in the worlds that those characters inhabit, so, um, which, is, which is always great, because a lot of my stuff, I learned early in Hollywood, don't write stories that take place in Los Angeles because they'll send you to Los Angeles and you already live there. Write stories that take place in far-off places and you get a lot of great trips out of it. So I do a lot of travel and meet people and, and you know, try to absorb habits, and the habits that they have, how they see their place in their own worlds. And, and, I, and then I take all that and kind of put it onto these character composites that I have. You know, when I talk to people, I talk about, not necessarily tell me the great story you had, but tell me the dream you had that didn't come true. Tell me the 
the ambition you had that was foiled or the one that you got or the thing that surprised you. And I try and take those things and then try and see. I, I need to build up in my characters when I create them. And this is way before I write. I spend a lot of time, uh, well, this is, is uh, probably not, not, not great anymore, but I spend a lot of time smoking and drinking. I smoke a pipe. Um, no cigarettes. But, uh, and, and really just letting these people come to life as if they're real people inside my head so that I can write really anything. I don't really worry about the story. Once the characters come into contact with each other, and they all have specific jobs. I'm writing espionage, so everyone has a job, and, and I, I know kind of the broad strokes of what the mission or operation might be. But as they impact each other, it's kind of like pool balls hitting each other, and, and I let that create my story for me, and, and let the intersection of, of these lives that are just lives, you know, strapped down to specific jobs, what those, the crash of those pool balls, what that creates, and that's usually where my story goes. Then when I'm done with that, I, I go back and, and then try and take out all the extraneous stuff that really doesn't, uh, that may be real in real life, but really doesn't mean anything. Are, are you concerned about writing, or are you conscious, I guess I should say, about how you write violence and sex on the page now? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, I've always been that way. You know, I, I've written some you know, violent stuff in scripts. You know, here's the interesting thing. I actually had a good learning experience. In the, in the screenplay for Sniper, which is the Tom Berenger, Billy Zane film, Panama, Morning Snipers of Panama, there's a torture scene. And um, the torturer ultimately takes the trigger finger from the American Sniper play by. To sell the script, I needed to write that scene to make everyone reading that script squirm. And that scene went on for a full page, which is... Just description of the scene, and they shot it. And probably 15 seconds of that, because a page of script is a minute of film. It's absolutely unwatchable. Absolutely the most horrible, terrifying thing. Even though I know I was on the set, it's not real. Just the ideas that were that, that it generates in an audience and in watching it is like this. This doesn't work at all. I, I learned the thing that the script. You know, you got to write it out in a script, but when you film it, you only need. 30 seconds of, uh, maybe less, I think it's maybe like 20 seconds of film. Well, what going for that with prose, the imagination carries a whole lot more weight. I just need to give the cues to the reader for the to let their imagination fill in the blanks. I, I don't think counting gunshots and bullets and, and um, how the blood splatters, I don't, I don't think people need to read that so much. The imagination is always going to be much more graphic than, than what you can write. Um, and it becomes gratuitous writing, I think. With sex, it, it's more interesting. In my second book, in Bishop's Endgame, there's a one of the main characters is a um, is a Malaysian woman, young woman that Bishop, who was played by Brad Pitt in the film, kidnaps. He he he, take, he doesn't trust her. She's she's run afoul of his operation. There's certainly a mystery to it. And the first scene, he's in her um, home, and he sees her undressing. Now. There's like a hundred ways to write that. None of them really play anymore today. And, and so I was confronted with, you know, it's not the world of John D. McDonald any longer. He <laughs> can't really write that stuff. And so I have to write the scene. I need the scene. He needs to see her undressing. But, boy, my editor, <laughs> she said, you know, this is, you know, in today's market, this reads as a rape. <laughs> well, then you know what? Rather than write, write the scene, why don't I write it more like he's consciously realizing that it might come off as a visual um, visual rape. I think there's a lot more in writing thrillers, in writing action, um, women need to be better served, and I think they are being better served nowadays, than the objectifying and, uh, that was done, you know, way back when. It's, it's, it's moving towards a better place, I, I think, with that. And, and so I don't go really into the details. I don't think anyone needs it. Now, that's not to say I don't love the old Travis McGee books or the James Bond novels where, where you have a whole lot of that and, and um, they still have, have a place and they're of their own time period. But I am conscious of the audience today. They, I don't think they want or Are you writing, do you think, a little bit differently too with sensitivity on, on the language, the, uh, um, the way people talk to each other? Because when you're in crime and espionage and all this stuff, like you were saying with James Bond and stuff, things were pretty... It's been pretty raw. It can be, you know, their dialogue. 
Um, I don't edit my dialogue that much for that. If people talk that way, that's the way they talk. It's really what you write around it and how you present it, um, acknowledge it, uh, dismiss it. There's there's ways around it within the non-dialogue part of the writing of the, of the fiction that you can sort of um, not excuse it, but flag it. You can flag it that way. You know, there was a thing, the editor I got in a, in an argument over the use of the word Eskimo, I'm like, are you serious? I can't write Eskimo? Talk like I'm writing Eskimo. You know, it's, it's, uh, there, is a, there is a group of indigenous people in Alaska who actually call themselves Eskimos, so my character's referring to that. You know, I, I'm not going to worry too much about that. I, I, I don't think, um, I do think editors and publishers are very aware of it, but I self-publish, so um, I don't think audiences are as... Um, uh, sensitive as I think editors and publishers think. What do you want people to get out of your book when they take it home and read it? That's a great question. Um, well, I want them to, I, I, I think I want them to have the experience and the enjoyment of a good, suspenseful read. I want them to think more about humanity. The, the books are really about what it is to be a person and to see that through the lens of characters in, involved in espionage and suspense. But my books speak more to, oh, that was a great roller coaster. They're more towards um, an emotional experience. I want them to have an emotional experience with the characters and, 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 um, and with the language. I, 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 I really find that, that language can, can create feelings in people, you know, that go beyond um, instances. Instances of, oh, that was, a, that was nifty but to make you feel something a little bit more and maybe peek around the corners of what it is to be human and, and, and the challenges we all face, it's, uh, that, that's, more, that's what I write towards. I, I, I write more towards humanity and, and, and I write towards morality um, and um, where it has its place and, and how that place is, is skewed um, within the world of espionage and, and how you, you have to sort of be doubly um, cognizant of it, or it'll get away from you. And, and sometimes it does, and sometimes it does, and maybe you have to be cognizant of that as well. Are you big on uh, social media? Do you, do, you, do you look at reviews and, and get into that at all, or do you, like, do you avoid that? No, I, 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 have, I have a very thick skin coming from Hollywood. Um, you know, you release a movie and you get, God, you get, like, 500 reviews all at once, and some can be scathing, scathing, awful reviews, and some are, some are okay. Um, I've been lucky so far. I've not really had any bad reviews. People genuinely like my books. The, um, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're quite well-liked. And, and, and the, the most gratifying has been from former um, intelligence officers, CIA officers, um, who have really been struck that I, I've captured what it is to be a spy um, that matches what they feel it was to be a spy and, and, or is to be a spy. I've had some very, very nice personal notices from that um, uh, that I've captured the way they felt and, and they themselves have never written down, but they said it, it, it read like what I felt. So I, I like that quite a bit. Um, the, uh, the, 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 the books are rather, I mean, they, I do get into the absurdity, so I do like to entertain people. I'm... Actually, haven't been very funny today, but I've actually I, I started writing comedy. So the books have have a, a good uh, a good amount of dark, dry humor to them. Um, I try to not take anything too seriously. I, I find um, that that gallows humor is is actually uh, pretty healthy, and so there's a lot of that in there. Um, but yeah, I, I like reading stuff. I like to engage with, with the audience. Um, and uh, on social media, you know, that's something, you, you know, in my career, you never could really do um, with film because there wasn't, when I was really actively writing, you know, I don't know, you know, 20 scripts a year, there was no social media. You can't really interact with people. Um, but nowadays, yeah, people write me on Facebook, and I, I like to talk about it. And, and um, the other thing I did learn in Hollywood is, is how healthy criticism is and... You know, unless it's, what's the word, unless it's trolling, actually criticism is helpful. Maybe you can't help the book that was published. It certainly can help you moving on. 
And you find in Hollywood, you spend a lot of time getting what they call notes from development executives. And they'll read your script and then they'll tell you every little thing that's wrong, every line they didn't like, what doesn't work, and, you know, launch you on a, on a torturous rewrite. Most people hate that. I learned to really, and I worked a long time, I was mentored by Sidney Pollack, and I worked with him uh, closely side by side for, oh, maybe eight years, six, six constant years, and then, then as his health failed uh, the last few years, maybe not, not as, as closely. But he really taught me that you got to listen to them, because usually the note and the criticism is wrong, but what they're reacting to is something didn't work. And you got to take that as a puzzle and decipher, actually, what was the thing that's not working with what you're doing? Um, because everyone wants to like what they read. They want to like the movie they see. They want to like the book they read. Um, and so they say, ah, I didn't like it because of this. That may not be the reason they didn't like it, but there is a reason. And so criticism, I think, is really helpful and healthy because it allows you to, to unpack it. Like, how did I miss that? What am I not doing that they missed? They may be wrong. They may be right as well. Sometimes people point things at me and go, oh, God, why didn't I do that? They're absolutely right. Other times it's like they're right because something did distress them about this. But it's my job to figure that out so I become a better writer uh, in the future. And and so, you know, so negative negative reviews actually are, are a tool. They're, they're just as good a tool, as long as they're not just vicious, you know, nonsense. So you get those too, and those are entertaining. Right. We'll try and get you some more here. So how do, people, <laughs> how do people find you? How do they get a hold of you? Like, what's your website and uh, contact information? That my my website is michaelfrostbeckner.com. Um, I'm really easy to find on Facebook. Um, I think it's also Michael Frost Beckner at Facebook. Um, Twitter, I'm Michael F. Beckner. And Instagram, it's also my full name. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm on those some days more than I should be, I, and I don't write. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm always touching base, and, and I, and I do like to uh, engage with people, and even people that hate my stuff, I, I enjoy engaging with them as well. They're, they got, they got to write. Um, so yeah, yeah, anyone who wants to reach out to me, I'm, I'm uh, happy to talk. To well, fantastic. I don't take scripts of this stuff. No, no yeah, I don't have anyone to give them to. Anymore. No, send your scripts to uh, to Joe, actually. <laughs> send yeah. them to Joe, absolutely. But we appreciate Seriously. you being on the show. Um, Mr. Michael Frost-Bettner, thank you very much. Thank you, Alan. That was really quite a pleasure. I, I, I appreciate the time. Thank you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.